Thanks for downloading this podcast from Brom Radio. For more programs, search our podcast page at bromradio.com. And welcome to the Brum Radio Book Show, our monthly look at all things bookish going on in the world of books. Um, I'm here with Catherine O'Flynn. Hello. And of course, the wonderful Blake Woodham. Failing with the buttons. Sorry, are you (laughs) unconvinced by my wonderfulness? Apologies. And uh, you're in for an an hour of chat, uh, conversation, uh, jokes and whatever about the, the, the world of about world of books, really. It's, it's just as if we've just woken up and just stumbled in here. Yeah, rather um, than the many hours of careful preparation. Yeah. Please remember that this. you can uh, come and you can chat to us on Twitter. We're on at Radio underscore books, or you can email us at bookclub at brumradio.com. And as um, this is going to be our last show for 2018, can you believe the end of another year? It speeds up, doesn't it, Mike? Yeah, it, it does. The older you get, the, the time, it, it, yeah. it doesn't stop. So um, we're going to be talking about favourite reads of the year. Um, please do let us know. Um, we're going to be talking about Christmas. Um, we're going to be talking about um, Jonathan R- Franson's rules for novelists. You were going to say Jonathan Ross's rules for uh, novelists. Yes, uh, I don't think he's got somebody. He, he might do. He might um, do. We're going to be talking, uh, Catherine's going to be continuing her library project, uh, which we've entitled Catherine's Library Safari. <laughs> Um, which we quite like. Um, it does imply there are some wild animals in certain parts of Birmingham which we don't want to spread that rule with, do we? No, there of are, course there are not. Dangerous no. dogs, for sure. Okay. I, I speak as an ex-postwoman. So <laughs> um, and we're also going to be uh, taking a little look uh, if we've got time at Christmas books and novels mm. and Christmas themes. So, um, how are you? How has everybody been? Blake, how have you been? I've been I've been very good. Yes. I'm, yeah, I'm just gearing up to record a second of my uh, experiences of producing an audio book. So I'm uh, recording Are you that. A producer. I am a producer. Is that, have you got a card? Is that how you introduce yourself uh, to young ladies? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that a card would impress young ladies. Anyway, um, yes. No, it's uh, it's an interesting Blake experience. Wooden. Book <laughs> audio book producer. Yeah. I can make your Bra- career. Brackets two books. Yeah. Um, I feel this has got darker um, than, than intended. Yeah, very, very quickly, early. actually. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm looking forward to that. It's, it's a really enjoyable experience, actually. Um, you do get to sort of see a different side of the creative process, and it is a creative endeavour in its own right, so I'm quite pleased. I'm looking forward to that. How about you, Catherine? Yes, I'm, I'm quite good as well. I've had a nice month. I've been reading quite a bit. I've been doing more, more cultural things than I, than I perhaps would ideally like, to be honest, but um, it's, all been, it's all been nice. Yeah. You've been on Radio 4 again, haven't you? Well, that, that hence the culture really, because they force you to go and eat lots of culture in a very short amount of time and then splurge an opinion about it. And often the problem I find is that I don't particularly have an opinion about it. But I don't know if it's a thing to be... Always good for a critic. Being with from Birmingham, but often my response is, it's all right, yeah. It's quite, it's, you but know, you, it's good uh, and bad. I... I don't know whether it's getting older, but I, I am at the stage, I, I feel exactly the same as you, where I think that most things are all right. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't offend me, yeah. but I don't love it either. Yeah, it's all right. And obviously, I think most people are like that, but some people are just really good at, uh, you know, pretending, you know, massive enthusiasm or massive uh, 
antipathy to things. No, I, no, I think I think you're right. I feel a little, a little bit of digression going on, but it, it's one of my bugbears. Where the, oh no! Uh, <laughs> Can we just yeah. have a monthly start yeah. called Mike's Bugbears? Where I'd listen do, to the whole do, do you know how uh, you know a film comes out and people either say you know you read critics and they say this is amazing, this is wonderful, this is the, uh, someone's best work, it's going to win an Oscar, and then you see it and you go. It was all right. Yeah. Are they watching the same film? That Steve McQueen film, um, yeah. The, yeah. Widows. the Widows. The Widows. So many rave reviews about it. Yeah. What a load of cobblers. <laughs> Honestly. You still just... prefer the BBC 1980s uh, <laughs> TV version? Uh, would I have seen it? it, it it's got to be better than this. It was awful. Really? Really awful. There's a great, just there's a great little bit clip of on it the internet. It made no sense at all. And you kind of just think, well, surely, surely, yeah. observer film yeah, reviewer, yeah. you've seen the same film as me. Are you just blowing smoke? Ah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's there's a whole debate here um, when we talk maybe later about difficult books and difficulty yes. and all this sort of stuff. Because I think all of this, um, you know, there is no right. Of course there's no right or wrong answers in this kind of stuff. And it, you bring it all with you. Yeah. And I just think sometimes people forget that. And they think there's a, there's a clip on the internet, of, a funny internet, of this guy responding uh, in absolute sort of rage at somebody saying that, you know, a certain cartoon or you know, a computer game he didn't like. They didn't like, and he loved it. And he's like screaming and screaming. This is terrible. And then, and then he goes, and then the other guy says, "But I did like this." And he was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, calm down, calm down. So yeah, none of that here. Everything is on the table. Yeah. And uh, for me, um, thank you very much for asking. I was about to. I was about to. I was just waiting for Blake wait, to wait, finish. Wait, sorry. Uh, yeah. No. How are you, Mike? What have you been up to? Uh, well. I'm glad you asked. Great. Uh, I was at the uh, National Book Awards, um, Very where I, I, I came close, but I didn't win. Um, but, but being I, there is almost more, well, more, not maybe not more fun, but it's a lot no, of fun. No, no, it was nice to be nominated, as yeah. they always say. And it, it was really good fun, actually. Um, it was filled with the great and the good. Um, Ricky Gervais was there. Um, uh, who's the cook? Jamie Oliver, Oliver was Oliver. <laughs> Jamie Oliver. Jamie, uh, Jamie Oliver, Oliver was there. Uh, I got to meet Stanley Tucci as oh, well. Wow. Yeah, um, he's so cool. Uh, so uh, we, we were chatting to somebody. I was chatting to somebody, and he said, "Oh, so and so is talking to uh, Stanley Tucci. Should we go and say hello?" I said, like, "Yeah, okay." So we went over and uh, said, uh, "Oh, Stanley Tucci, this is Mike Gow." And uh, Stanley went, "Hi." <laughs> And he was wearing this like black turtleneck and a suit, and he just looked the absolute bomb. He just <laughs> so corny and like, and but you, you, he clearly knew that we'd only just gone over there just to say to be introduced to go. All right, let's meet Stanley Tucci, and I got nothing to say to him. No. You know, I really liked you in a film, a film <laughs> that was possibly where you were playing an Italian American. I don't know. Um, but it was really good fun. And um, it was great to have a load, load of authors in one room. Um, so some of the winners were um, stories for uh, Boys Who Dare to Be Different by Ben Brooks. And um, Blake and I actually met uh, Ben a couple of years ago at the um, down in London, uh, that prize thing. The German guy, the guy who lives in Berlin. Oh. Yeah, so that's Ben Brooks. So he, he, yeah. So he was. Run. This was at the Betty Trask that's prize, it, the Betty Trask wasn't Award. it? Yes. And he was like, yeah, I remember him getting an award, didn't he? And he, that's he, it, he yeah. came up on stage and was like, "Thanks, this is great for my ninth novel or something." And he was about ten. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He, he was so young and he'd written yeah. so much. And uh, he, he gave a really wonderful speech where essentially he didn't know what to say. Um, and but he's he's very cool with it. So I think that's for young people. Um, the young adult book was uh, "Feminists Don't Wear Pink." Um, 
by um, Scarlett Car- Curtis. This has had a lot of publicity as well. Yeah, yes, it did. Yeah, they were wandering around the party wearing um, suffragette uniforms, as you do when Not you're twelve. Not from Topshop. Um, yeah, uh, and she made the point that um, it was ironic that she won a, a, a prize for a book that she didn't actually write. Moving on, um, Eleanor Oliphant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Gail Honeyman was there and um, she was looked very overwhelmed by it. She always looks overwhelmed. Were you going to say she looked very overweight? I no, was no. Just about to pull the plug on <laughs> the. Uh... Excuse me. Yeah, I don't know. It's just no. the way you. No, she just looked overwhelmed. She constantly looks overwhelmed. Anytime I see her, um, no, I don't see a great deal of her, but, uh, you know, just wandering around the house. But um, <laughs> she, 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 she looked just overwhelmed. You know, uh, quite clearly she was, she was going to win everything and, um, and she did really well. Uh, Sally Rooney was up for international author and uh, she oh, won. Yeah. And uh, people have been raving about normal people. Has anyone read it? No, I read the first one. Mm. Have you read it, Mark? I read the first no, one. No, I, I, I really fancied um, it was all I really right. fancied normal people. <laughs> Um, but now that I've had that ringing endorsement, I'm not yeah. sure. No, I haven't. But you, you enjoyed. What was the first book called? Uh, Conversations with friends. With friends. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I thought it was obviously. There's great things about it, I, but I didn't completely love it. And yeah, yeah, my husband was asking me the other day, oh, Sally Rooney. Apparently, she's you know, yeah, yeah, she's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, I was like, oh, and it's okay. weird. I, I feel, you know, it's, sometimes with these things, it's a little bit, you know. You feel a little bit King's Clothing, is, is it? Yeah. What am I missing? I, I, I'm not getting it. Um, but apparently this one is even better than the other yeah. one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, who knows? But she didn't turn up. Um, so and got her agent to, uh, editor to uh, do whatever. Uh, Sally, uh, Belinda Bauer won for um, Snap mm-hmm. with, Chris, uh, with Crime Thriller. Um, Dolly Alderson won for Autobiography. And um, my observation of Dolly Alderson, she's very tall. Uh-huh. Okay. Very tall, uh, very posh. Right. Yeah. Uh, tall, I wonder, posh. I wonder if there are people called Dolly who are not posh. If, if any of the listeners know anyone who's called Dolly who's not posh. Non-posh yeah. Dollies. Yeah. That's I, don't, I don't include Dolly Parton, who's definitely not posh, came from a very modest background, but English Dollies. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, the real winner of the, the evening was um, Adam Kay's This Is Going to Hurt, which, which basically won every category it was in. Which He's was become like a sort of rock star. He does massive yes, events, yeah. I did, doesn't I did he? love that yeah. book. Have you guys read it? I've not no. read it yet. It, no, is, no, it no. is very good. No, it's very Annoyingly. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, and he was a lo- lovely guy as well. And um, uh, Best UK Author um, went to, uh, and I think um, Matt Haig was up for this along with... Um, Scottish thriller detective um, writer Rankin. Ian Rankin. That's it, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was uh, it went to Philip Pullman with the Book of Dust. Uh, Philip couldn't come, but he got his editor to read out a very funny letter that um, right. uh, Philip had written. Philip, I keep saying Philip. I'm going to stop now. That is his name. Did you get into any like little scraps with anyone else? Uh, did I get into scra- any scraps? Um, no, no, um, no. I, I was well behaved. Well, um, well done. I uh, tried to pick a fight with Richard Hammond when I went to a book awards. Oh, did you? Yeah. And how did he get on? I think I won. Oh, really? <laughs> he's, well, he's, what was it about the fuel, the fuel efficiency? No, it wasn't of the... really me. It was my husband. It was, um, I think we were both up for Newcomer of the Year. Oh, right, I okay. got it. And I don't really like Richard Hammond because I don't like Top Gear. No. And so as we were passing him, Pete very maturely got my trophy and just pushed it in his face and went, ah! <laughs> Which, um, so there you go. I oh, I bet really, that went down well. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he even noticed. I think when he went back to his golden palace that night, <laughs> he probably cried himself to sleep. So, uh, yeah, so, but it was, it was a good night and, um, yeah, and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad and so we're just starting to look forward to next things. Mm. You look very dapper in the photos. Thank well you very done. much. Well yes, done. I'm yeah. I, I like to, 
every, I, I'm really conscious of, um, I don't know if you have this, Catherine, but um, when people are going to meet authors, I always think, I need to look like an author. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I just go, right. Leaking, should, leaking bio in your pocket. <laughs> I should put on my author clothes and go to that there London and, and, yeah. and sort of, you know, swank about like an author. Well, you're wearing velvet, which is so authorial. Yes. Well, well this is it. Will yes. Dean, I noticed that, that, so I also looked at all the photographs. Of him. <laughs> Will Dean, who, who was up for a prize, I think in the same category as yeah. you, wasn't he? Um, and he was also wearing velvet. He was wearing velvet, but an like, open, very open shirt. Yes. And he lives in like a, a shack in the middle of the woods. Yes. Um, and it must have been a very strange business for him. So he sort of, you know, literally kind of huge use his own dinner out of his bare hands every morning. Will Dean is all man. He, his, his shirt was buttoned like halfway down his oh. chest and, and uh, it was just, it was a sight to behold. <laughs> was it, was it, you were there with the force of his masculinity? It was, it was just, you know, I, I was, I just felt myself becoming emasculated the, the closer you came to me. Um, so, uh, we're also going to be talking uh, about what's going on in Birmingham. Mm. And so, uh, Blake, have you got any what's going well, on I in I want Birmingham? to shout about uh, a book that's just come out, uh, The Book of Birmingham, edited by Kavita Banot, uh, a city in short fiction. It looks beautiful. I'm holding it up for the benefit of the readers yeah, at home. Um, like a sort of, uh, drawing of, of the city. Um, and it's, it's about a kind of... It's it's very it's, book, it's short stories about the city itself, so it it takes in the kind of the the whole s- sort of spread of its history. It sets against key moments in the history of the city. Um, Malcolm X came to Smethwick in 1965, which I didn't know. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. And then talking about the Hansworth riots and the the decline of industry in the 70s and 80s, and also moving on to sort of current issues such as tensions between different communities. Um, so it's got a range of, of different writers. A couple of ones um, we've featured on the show before, Kit DeWall and Sharon uh, Duggle. Um, but uh, yeah, it seems to cover a whole range. I haven't read all of it yet. But I'm looking forward to, and, and also I'm really tempted to colour in the cover. It looks like a colouring book, oh, um, one of those adult colouring books. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the book of Birmingham, and that is is something I think is gorgeous. It's by Comma Press, a uh, small press I think here, and um, yeah, lovely looking book, lot of lovely stories, um, and um, interesting. You know, Birmingham, as we know, has been defined by other people telling its stories for such a long time. So it's nice to have have a, a local voice on it. Fantastic, and and that's available in all good bookshops. All good bookshops, I Fantastic. imagine. And it's uh, certainly available in foils this morning when I went and had a look. Oh right, okay. And Catherine? Yeah, um, there's quite a lot going on this month. Um, I'd say um, on Saturday, if you're in Borsal Heath, there's an event going on at the library there on uh, two o'clock, and it's libraries, called- libraries, libraries. That's all you talk about these <laughs> days. That's all I go on about. Um, there was a little festival uh, earlier on in the year called the Heathland Festival that kind of linked up Borsal Heath, Druids Heath and King's Heath. All and, the Heaths? Yeah. and a kind of it, it was for kids, but it was really good because it kind of mined the mythology of these areas mixed up with like druidic kind of past with, um, you know, chip shops and chickens and stuff like this. <laughs> so it's kind of, Only yeah, in Birmingham. They, um, they brought out a book, uh, which, which I have in fact contributed a story to, and it's being launched on... Um, on Saturday at 2pm. So, And there's lots of activities for kids, so that's a, a fun one to go to. There's also um, Birmingham publishers Emma Press are going to be accepting picture book proposals for children's books from the 14th of January, so they're running a little competition for that. Um, successful authors get matched with an illustrator, um, and authors who illustrate their own work are also welcome to submit. So that's uh, going on in the early of the new year. Mm. And also the other competition that's going on is the Royal Society of Literature, launch their poems for peace competition which is for young people under 18 um 
write poetry exploring what peace means to you for a chance to win a signed copy of Peace Poetry Anthology. Okay, and some book titles. Mm. There you go. Um, I've got a few. Um, apparently, there's still time for publishers to send in entries for the YA Book Prize 2019. English language YA fiction titles aimed at 16 to 24 hours can be submitted by Friday, the 7th of December. Um, uh, I know that um, Writers West Midlands, um, Writing West Midlands, uh, are also got sub- are open for submissions for their Room um, 204. Yeah. Um, Scheme, which which isn't a, a writing scheme as such, is it? It's more of a mentoring scheme. A mentoring is that right? Scheme, I think, for young writers. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there's um, been an absolute slew of fantastic writers that have come through that. It's a real. Oh, really? It's been really. Yeah, it's a really, great. it's a really one to watch. So you get one to one meetings twice a year with experience, um, um, with experienced writing West Midlands staff. Uh, you get a, a year's membership of the Society of Authors, um, a writers buddying scheme. There's group network working and career developments. You get occasional workshops on particular themes such as pitching, fundraising, time management and digital writing. um, There's also, uh, you get a free place in the National Writers Conference and uh, ongoing support as a member of Room 204 uh, beyond the first year. So um, the, uh, I think the date for that is uh, so apply as soon as you can um, and I think all, all the information is on the Rising West Midlands um, uh, website uh, also uh, at Waterstones in Birmingham on uh, Saturday 15th of December uh, Romesh Rangathan Ranganathan Ranganathan I think sorry I was one syllable out uh, um, will be appearing and talking about his, um, his latest book Straight Out of Crawley um and I think I've got one more thing. Um, uh, there's a flash fiction workshop, uh, afternoon tea and reading with poet and fiction writer Tanya Hirschman. Um, and it's going to be hosted by Bryce Goddard and uh, it's going to be happening at the Midland Institute. Um, it sounds like it's going to be a, a lot of fun. It went up, do you know? Uh, that is December the 8th, uh, as I said, at the Midland Institute. Okay, that's Friday, I think, isn't it? Right. right, so now we're going to get into the meat of the show. Mm. Um, let me just find out. Uh, were, yes, oh, oh yes, yeah, sorry. So I was just saying we were, we were just, Mike talking about awards, we were talking about the booker. Of course, that's it, yeah. And uh, Anna Burns who won with The Milkman. Have you read any of her, of her novels? I have not even heard of her, no. to be honest, before. Your brother has read it. <laughs> So that's that's the level of which we're going to review. Yeah, that's right. Catherine's <laughs> brother read it. A brother who has no particular claim to uh, literary uh, criticism. Well, none of us. But, it, but it sort of brings up a, a sort of wider topic of about. Well, the, that's the big thing, isn't it? Books that are difficult. Isn't it? That's the, all the comments that have been around. It's a difficult book. Mm. Um, it's a it's a difficult book, and you know, I'm I'm really interested in that that whole debate because there's a lot you know it happens all the time we get these this stuff out literary fiction um that's experimental and difficult um you either get an article that says don't be snobby about it yeah um or you get an article that says you know we need more of it um and you know i, I don't really know where i stand on this because i just don't believe you know it's not sound pompous i don't believe there's such a thing because oh, i do I, absolutely what I, mean is, I think you bring it to it that's what yeah. i mean is, is that i have i have read books that i've thought Fundamentally, I'm not clever enough to understand what the writer needs here, and it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily a clever book. Dan Brown stumped me, for example. You know, um, so it's, I think it's what you bring to it yourself. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, I can see that, but I, I think there's also people adding a level of difficulty deliberately in order to, 
either be obtuse or to sort of make some sort of point. You know, taking out um, capital letters, refusing to use punctuation, making it a thousand pages long. Um, These are all difficult books in my my experience, and and I will avoid them like the plague. You know, if... You're sitting down to tell a story, and the first thing you do is decide that you're not going to use punctuation or speech marks. Who didn't? Well, I just for example, think, this book, yes. uh, Milkman, uh, none of the characters have names. Uh, right. Apparently makes Already, I'm put off. But 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 I'll give you a counterpoint to that, though. Is I mean, I don't know if you've read either Ridley Walker uh, or uh, Clockwork Orange, where the, the language is very difficult, and you start reading that. You know, I remember reading Clockwork Orange and thinking, "This is gibberish. I don't understand this," but chapter in two chapters in it clicks you get yeah. it you understand what's going on it makes sense it's totally it's it's legitimate it's it's logical within that and then you get it but you have to kind of put that in um so i think but, there is a case why, to be wouldn't made you, for that. why wouldn't you name a character well she what, said a good reason. she said that she did originally have names and it didn't work you know, for, for what she was trying to do. Listen, uh, that's the, the absolutely book ridiculous. Of, the book it, didn't, it didn't work with names. That's what she said. I, mean, I just think it's she's just, trying to create a mood and emotion. I, I, it's I don't just I mean, obviously, we'll have to line very heavily on on Catherine's brother, uh, who's read this. Well, I just, I just want to perhaps offer a middle ground here, which is, yeah, I, I think the problem is that books being described as difficult is enormously off-putting, mm. and sometimes, um, you know, I was thinking just then when you were talking about no punctuation or no speech marks. I know the um, Midlands-based writer Anthony Cartwright, he doesn't use speech mm. marks. I didn't even notice that. I read two of his novels without noticing that, and it was only afterwards that I read a review. But why, thought, why, why is it? Like, I, don't, I don't know. I think it's just because it just, he flows in and out. of. And it, that's, if you say that, it sounds very confusing and difficult, but it actually wasn't. I read mm. it, and it was completely seamless to me. I didn't even notice. And so I think sometimes... I mean, obviously, you know, it's different people think different things are difficult. I would find it very difficult, yeah, to read Dan Brown. I find I find some difficult books. I absolutely agree with you that they are just embarking on some academic project that isn't really inviting me in. Yeah. But I think some books get described as difficult and the way they are described makes you think, oh, God, that's not for me. And then you actually read them and you think, oh, that was actually really embracing. I, I mean, clearly we're, we're, not, we're not going to agree on any of this at all. But <laughs> really? I, 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 think it, I, think, I think for me... Storytelling is about communication. It's about, um, you know, trying to get your idea across. And, I, and I, I think deliberately, if I tried to engage you in a conversation and just started speaking gibberish, um, you'd just look at me and you wouldn't listen to my story and you wouldn't be interested in me. So, you know, why would I be interested in it when it's written down? Did you read the... There was an article about this in The Guardian um, and, and what the, the illusion that the writer used there was it's like... Um, blues and jazz it's saying you know jazz is more complicated and more difficult to play than than blues it doesn't mean it's better um and it doesn't mean that all jazz is good and all blues is bad but it is you do have to kind of you know have a different level you know you might have to kind of work up to it and all that kind of stuff you might have to kind of learn to appreciate it yeah i don't necessarily think you always i don't think you always have to work to it i think sometimes what you were just saying mike about how it's about communicating i think that's absolutely true but sometimes the actual normal traditional story structures can get in the way of communication. Do you know what I mean? Some stories don't fit that. Like, you know, like David Foster Wallace or something, he will describe a lot of what's going on in your mind and you think, actually, this is exactly what my mind is like, flitting about all the time. And it's, it communicates really well, mm. but it's not necessarily, you know, a, a standard story structure. Mm. No, I, I read um, I uh, uh, Ben, I don't know if you've read Ben Lerner. Yeah, he's a poet and he's written a couple of novels. Yeah, I love his books. Um, yeah and his, his first novel, Leaving the Cotcher Station, 
I just was exactly that. It was essentially nothing happening. Um, and I was obsessed with it. I just thought, mm. my God, this man's pulling my thoughts out of my head um, and putting them on the page. But you should it, say uh, that it is about a compulsive liar. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, there's, there's a fantastic sequence in it when he's, you know, he's he's in a hotel with his girlfriend, and he just goes out for in a strange place, and I just, he just goes out for a walk and gets lost and can't find his way back, and he's out all day. And I thought, oh, I can just imagine doing that. And she's she's like waiting for him. He's, like, he's just wandering around. Bar- there we go. So difficult books. We don't know. They're difficult. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not convinced by either of your arguments. I mean, I, I can see that there is a place for difference. Um, and I, I sort of like the jazz illusion, but it, it's sort of where I feel it's a bit like where prose starts to meet poetry. Uh-oh. And that's where I, I turn off. And you know uh, how you feel about poetry, Mike. Yes. yes. <laughs> you cannot uh, accuse Mike of prevaricating <laughs> about poetry. I would that's... say that might be number one on Mike's list of bugbears. Well, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> um, please, we'd love to hear what you've got to say uh, about difficult novels. Um, please join us on Twitter at, at BrumRadio underscore books or email us at bookclub at BrumRadio.com. Uh, so next, uh, we're going to be talking about... Um, Jonathan Franzen's Rules for Novelists. Mm-hmm. So apparently, uh, Mr. Franzen um, has got a, a Rules for Novelists, and given that we have uh, two in the room, I just thought we'd, uh, we'd have a little discussion about Find out how many of them you're breaking. Yes, how many we're breaking, what we think of them. Um, rule number one, the reader is a friend, not an adversary. Adversary? Adversary. Um, not a spectator. Well, I'll read that again. The reader is a friend... Not an adversary, nor a spectator. Okay. What does that mean? That doesn't seem terribly controversial. I, I, I don't know, but I would never... I think I always write yes. for a friend anyway. I'm always imagining someone in my head, you know, and not an adversary and not a spectator. But, but Uncontroversial, I'd say. Interestingly, that sort of links in with what we've just been ta- talking about because some of those novels, I would argue, is the writer treating the reader... Um, uh, certainly as a spectator as a mm. look at me mm. yeah. look at what I'm yeah. doing look how fabulous I am yeah. and is it is it really about friend, do you feel friendly when somebody's removing punctuation <laughs> and making it difficult to communicate I was I'm reminded of that of that uh, the ultimate of that was that when, when Will Self did that thing where he sort of wrote a novel in public do you remember this? A few years ago, he was like in some room art gallery, and he was writing, and it was all appearing on the screen, and people would walk could walk around and watch him, and he would like put them in the book as they walk past, and that's sort of the ultimate kind of spectator sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is fiction that isn't uh, auth- the, an author's personal adventure into the frightening or the unknown isn't worth writing for anything but money. Um, I'm not entirely sure what he means about that, but I don't think I agree. <laughs> Well, <laughs> my, uh, well, I think, I, I, I think he's, what he's saying is is that um, you know fiction should be scary and it should be you plumbing the depth of your. Oh, I fears. thought he was saying don't do that. Um, I know he's saying you should do that. You should do that because okay. if you if you do anything else, then you're just doing it for money. As oh, though okay. writing for money is a bad thing. Yeah, but, um, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think you have to plumb the depths of your fears I think you can plumb the depths of I think you should probably plumb depths of some sort but they don't have to be your fears certainly not your fears they can be just your character's fears yeah 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 Um, I won't go through all of these Uh, we'll be here all day but um, he says write in the third person unless a really distinctive first person voice offers itself irresistibly 
Well, that's obvious, isn't it? I mean, saying unless that's like right in the third person, unless you decide it'd be better not to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, thanks, Jonathan. Oh, Francis put in his place. <laughs> well, it's just that he's running out of things to say, isn't he? He's like, it's number ten, be... put a full stop, unless it's not the end of a sentence. <laughs> it's funny that question about the, the the third and first person thing is. I never think about it, but my my father never read books in his life, never read them, and then. Uh, when he was poorly near the end of his life, he started reading them, um, but he could only read books, novels written in the first person. Oh, if they were written in the third person, you know, the obviousness that this is all just made up, I think, oh, was too strong. Too it was strong. like, yeah. this is just someone saying something. It's ridiculous. In the first person, he could he could accept it, um, which I'd never considered before, but I can sort of see the point of that. Uh, number eight is, it's doubtful that anyone with an internet connection at his workplace is writing good fiction. <laughs> You know, I, I've heard him say this before, and I know he has those. Doesn't well, he, he hates blind, technology, He writes he? blindfolded with noise-cancelling headphones oh, on, I believe. Um, or at least that might be a little myth, but I like <laughs> it. Um, yeah, I'm. I've not only do I have an internet connection, but I kind of check my emails on the internet about every 37 seconds <laughs> while I'm writing. And I tried to stop doing it. I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm going to do that whole unplugged thing. And I just stopped writing. And I realised now it's a kind of, it's become this awful framework that supports, you know, I'll type three words, check my email. Oh, another spam about ingrown toenails. Back to writing about, you know, it's... Um... Well, ironically, I, I've, I've just got a new computer. And um, it, it, for some reason, it seems to have set itself up so that it, it's sucking down my emails from the, the cloud yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so it will ding. And oh, so God. as I'm writing, it will just go ding. And I, I feel myself subtly being conditioned, yeah. like some sort of lab rat. <laughs> you just, just got to go ding. Ah, it's a reward. Ah. <laughs> ding. So, um, yeah, so by the end of the year, I, I just, I'll, I'll hear a ding and I'll just automatically just sort of reach for my mouse. Well, that's probably, that's probably all good. I, I, I do a, the, an online crossword, New York Times crossword every day, because uh, that's the way mm, I go. Um, and, um, <laughs> every day? I know, I'm yeah, my okay. and it, it, But it pings up when you're halfway through, and I find that quite gratifying. Ping, you're halfway through. You're quite gratifying. Is it, tell me it's not a cryptic crossword. I, know, I, I cannot stand <coughs> cryptic crosswords. Okay, I have a positive. Although, the, it, this one, it's a weird one. They, they have all kind of weird crosswords. Crosswords are a fascinating subject. Um, they have, <laughs> they do things called rebus, where all, lots of letters are all in the same square. It's quite oh, yes. weird uh, and, and stuff, uh, stuff that's a bit confusing. Yes, uh, let's do crosswords. Anyway, rules for novelists. We don't approve of them there, Germany. Um, uh, well, uh, just a, uh, one final one. Um, uh, his number 10 is um, you have to love before you can be relentless. <laughs> You know, it sounds like he's got this out, out I think of a. He's got an algorithm that just generates. Uh, yeah, you know, or knowledge. out of a fortune cookie or something. <laughs> yeah. but you have to love before you can be relentless. Blake, what's your take? Um, I'm. I am. I've never been relentless, um, <laughs> so I can't say really. I'm does that mean that you've never loved? Or I don't know. Maybe it does. This is a horrifying thought. I've I've met some relentless people, and they're very unlovable, frankly. So I'm not entirely sure about that one. But I, th- I think the whole rules for novelists thing. You know, I don't know about you, Mark. If you've ever looked into kind of 
teaching creative writing and this has always been my problem with the idea of becoming some sort of teacher of creative writing is I think you do need to feel that there are rules and you have to sort of I think what students really love from a novelist is like you need to do it this way and don't yeah. do it that way and I'm just totally not like that I'm like well do it you or, know whatever or don't do you. it <laughs> a famous quote from some novelist who said there are three rules to writing unfortunately no one knows what they are mm, I think yeah. that maybe that is the case maybe just just write would be about the end of so that, that would be your rule yeah I can't I really don't think it's helpful I think there's you know just a multiplicity of approaches and styles and it's you know I can help people if they're if there's a specific thing but just this idea of issuing blank don't ever write in the third person don't ever write in the first person it's yeah. just stupid I, th- I think if I love and to, then be relentless I think, I think if I had to have a rule I'd, I'd have two rules I'd, okay. I'd have Catherine's right yeah. I don't think anybody the, the amount of people say oh I'd, I'd really love to write a novel and they go well have you written anything no <laughs> are you planning to write anything no um, so you've got to write no you can't begin to write a novel you can't get a novel published unless you sit down yeah. and actually start writing stuff and, and secondly um, read yeah. I think I, I'm shocked by the number of people who say oh, I really want to be a novelist okay brilliant what are you reading at the minute nothing yeah yeah. But I really want to be a novelist. And I, I just think, you know, the two go in hand, uh, yeah. hand in hand. Yeah. Blake, any advice for um, writers? <laughs> well, I'm no, I'm no writer, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to well, no, stick but I mean, you, you, you've read more, more books than two of us combined. Well, I say one of the things I would, uh, from my experience of, of trying to write is, um, I guess not to get, and uh, I've learned this from talking to yourselves, is not to get too freaked out by um, what you do read. Because I think one of the problems I have is, I'll read great book and I'll think, well, what's the point ever picking up a pen? Mm. Um, because I can't, you know, I don't ever expect to get as good as that. So um, I don't mean I'll go off and read a rubbish book just right. to sort of balance it out. But just this idea that it's like you were saying there, Catherine, is that, you know, you can only write your own yeah. way and your own kind of experiences. Um, so, yeah, I think I guess I guess my advice, such as it would be, <laughs> is not to get sort of um, caught a rabbit in the headlights and, tr- and just writing what? trying to emulate anyone else no, or yeah. try and you know be despairing that you'll never be as good as writing at Jonathan Franson is <laughs> it's a high price to pay yeah yeah, yeah. well I have to say I've, I've, I've really struggled with Jonathan Franson's book just on the grounds that uh, talking about difficult is just all his characters are much much more clearly much more intelligent than me yeah um, as he obviously is but what they all are and they all understand their own I mean what they do is they all understand their own motivations and they right. and they make these these clearly pithy I think I can't, you know, that's just not like my life. Anyway, right. We'd love to hear if you got if you've got any uh, rules for writing or uh, rules for even reading, perhaps. Um, please let us know at, at Brum Radio uh, underscore books or email us at bookclub at brumradio.com. Next up, we're going to be doing our audio book of the month, and this month's book is what? One Day in December by Josie Silver, which is a Ooh. Christmas-themed book. And it, I, I, think, I believe it's the uh, Kindle number one at the moment. It's certainly high oh, up there. Yes, and it, it, was, been, yeah. it was raved about by Reese Witherspoon on Twitter this week. Ooh. So that's the kind of cutting-edge... That's what I look for in a book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the Witherspoon. Well, the with, there is a Witherspoon effect. Um, you know, she certainly. Uh, she's from Solly Holden, writer. Um, not with, no. <laughs> I thought Reese Witherspoon is from yeah. Solly Holden. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. What as an well. incredible accident! <laughs> Let's have a listen to a little excerpt from it. Into one small space. There's a guy perched on one of the fold down seats in the bus shelter. This can't be his bus because he's engrossed in the hardback book in his hands. I notice him because he seems oblivious to the pushing and shoving happening right in front of him. 
Like one of those fancy special effects at the movies where someone is completely still and the world kaleidoscopes around them, slightly out of focus. I can't see his face, just the top of his sandy hair, cut slightly long and given to a wave when it grows, I should imagine. He's bundled into a navy woolen reefer jacket and a scarf that looks like someone might have knitted it for him. It's kitsch and unexpected against the coolness of the rest of his attire, dark skinny jeans and boots, and his concentration is completely held by his book. I squint, trying to duck my head to see what he's reading, wiping the steamed up window with my coat sleeve to get a better look. I don't know if it's the movement of my arm across the glass or the flickering lights of dandruff woman's earrings that snag in his peripheral vision, but he lifts his head and blinks a few times as he focuses his attention on my window. On me. We stare straight at each other and I can't look away. I feel my lips move as if I'm going to say something, God knows what, and all of a sudden, and out of nowhere, I need to get off this bus. I'm gripped by the overwhelming urge to go outside, to get to him. But I don't, I don't move a muscle, because I know there isn't a chance in hell that I can get past Anorak Man beside me and push through the packed bus before it pulls away. So I make the split-second decision to stay rooted to the spot and try to convey to him to get on board using just the hot, desperate longing in my eyes. He's not film star good-looking or classically perfect, but there is an air of preppy dishevelledness and an earnest, who, me, charm about him that captivates me. I can't quite make out the colour of his eyes from here. And that was our audiobook of the month. It was uh, Josie Silver mm-hmm. and One Day in December. Mm-hmm. I think her surname's really silver. No, it, it, it's not, apparently. It's, it's uh, it, always something really... Um, Prosaic. I can't remember. She's from Wolverhampton, though. Oh, oh I thought it was Solihull. Okay. No, Sorry. no, yeah, she's from Wolverhampton. Um, local. But she used to write on the name... Um, Karen French or Katie French or something oh, like okay. that. So she's been. Um, I'm just assuming if you write Christmas books, you have to have some slightly sparkly. Yeah. Yes, so something, it's something a, jingly. The, yes. the, the, the area is uh, festive romance, mm. um, but there's also a lot of Christmas crime novels as well. There's whole oh. swathes of that, um, you know, kind of Agatha Christie cozy crime novels. And I guess Christmas ghost stories, people Christmas ghost stories. One of the big books this summer is a book called uh, Marley or, or something along those lines, Mr. Marley, which is like a prequel to uh. a Christmas carol. I have been doing my research on this. Well, hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. Uh, But next up, uh, Catherine um, has been, been, well, she's taken on a sort of a mission to visit every single one of the, how many? Uh, 37. 37 libraries in Birmingham. The 37 public libraries of Birmingham, yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's like a, a pilgrimage Really, a pilgrimage. If you will. Yeah, if you will. I'm not quite sure who is the uh, the religious. I suppose it's the, the idea of a public library is the, the religious deity that I'm uh, a pilgrim for. Um, and uh, so... Which one are you at this week? This month Mid-month. I visited Sutton Coalfield Library. Mm. And so the idea is I visit all of them and I write a little essay in inverted commas page one. And so I'm not going to read... I have, I have actually written the essay, which is, is pretty fast work for me, you know. <laughs> but I'm not going to read all of it because it would be too long. So I'll read a little excerpt. Oh, by the way, do you remember last month we were talking about ways I could sort of... Some little quick indicator where I could, you know, have oh, a yes, little yeah. marker of each library. Well, I decided this isn't going to feature in the essays, but I decided what it would be is I would count the number of Mike Gale versus Catherine O'Flynn books in the library. Oh. And I have to say, certain Coalfield Mike, you are winning hands out 4 0. To be Thank fair, you, you Mike, even have well, a to book be fair, in the DIY Mike, section. 
to, do to be fair, surely, is that, is that because they've taken all yours out? They're, um, exactly, they're not on the shelves. And also that Mike's written about 15 to your, yeah, your three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, just, just saying, you know, you're, you're winning there. Okay, so I'll read maybe a few minutes of my, uh, about my visit to St. Coalfield. So I used to use this library a lot back in the late 80s when I lived in neighbouring Erdington, mainly, as far as I remember, to borrow CDs. I haven't been back in at least 15 years. If I'm honest, I've avoided Sutton Coalfield altogether for the last three years since having my fingers crushed in lift doors in the shopping centre over the road and being too traumatised to return. Still, I put all that behind me for this visit. The library is four years my junior, and maybe that's why despite being almost 50 years old, it still feels like a new library to me. It's open plan and large, the biggest in the city after the main library of Birmingham. Though not as large as it once was since the council sold off the second floor earlier this year. Like most public libraries, Sutton has been fighting for its survival over the last decade. It closed for a few months for asbestos removal back in 2010 and didn't open again until 2013. Maintenance closures for local libraries are like falls for the elderly. Something theoretically quite minor and straightforward often turns out to be fatal. Once a library closes its doors for repairs, local authorities can prove very reluctant to open them again. Sutton Coalfield managed to pull through and open after a long hibernation, only for the council to then announce plans to close the library for good, saying it was the most expensive to run in the city. A local community group called Folio, Friends of Libraries in our... Sutton Coalfield, was formed to fight the closure. They succeeded finally with a proposal that put a cafe and a soft play area in the library to generate extra revenue. But there was a bit of a spat with the rival acronym gang, FOLOB, Friends of Library of Birmingham, who accused Folio of trying to turn the library into a glorified wacky warehouse. Strong words. But as far as I can see, FOLOB failed to come up with any other ideas, so Folio won the fight and they kept the library open. FOLOB's worst fears don't seem to have come to pass. The soft play and cafe are around the opposite side of the library from the entrance and on my visit I found the reference section to be properly library silent. It was actually quite baffling how the sound didn't travel at all in an open plan space. I wondered if it was maybe something unusual about the air in Sutton Coldfield. Maybe that's why it took so long for anyone to hear me screaming as the lift doors had crushed my fingers. You see, the trauma hasn't really gone away at all. There are about 30 other people in the library on a Monday lunchtime not including those in the cafe and soft play. And most of them are in the reference section, which is an amazing resource. I could lose myself for days in the local newspaper archive alone, which is unbelievably exhaustive, with shelves of bound volumes for each sub-area of Sutton Coalfield. Some dedicated archivist has catalogued all of these, providing painstakingly handwritten indexes like a Benedictine scribe, allowing someone like me to find, for example every reference to dog fouling in Boldmere in a particular year. And I will leave it there. That is fantastic. Can I just say, when you, when you, did, did he, when you described it, the, about them closing and being like old people falling over, I, I felt that was quite emotional. Mm. Just the whole... I, I feel like libraries are under attack. Oh, mm. they really are. And that happens so often. You know, there'll be something quite simple, like a boiler repair or a bit of a leaky roof, and that's it. The that's library it. goes for years or forever. And 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 it to so many people they're such an important place, aren't they? I, I think they're see. great. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I 
you know, I just think that, you know, there's not very many places you can just go for free and, you know, there's just amazing resources there. I do sort of understand the follow-up um, yeah. kind of angle of it is also one of those very few places you can go to where there's no kind of commercial dimension mm. um yeah. so you know I, I obviously understand that they have to do they have to do have to you know pay their way but you know i can i can understand that the, the kind of dissatisfaction it's, with it's that. a really interesting thing that's going on with libraries because um i i, I was actually at um, a library in nottingham this week um doing an event and one of the people told me there that apparently um actual takings out of books lendings loans uh, of books are actually down mm. by quite a significant number, presumably because of the Kindle effect and um, Kindle books being so cheaply, it's just easy to download than go to your own library. And so libraries are actually having to kind of actually fight for their very existence, yeah. you know, in the minds of people because, you know, what are they for? And so, you know, in their defence, you know, I think they're trying to be... <coughs> sorry. I think they're trying to think, find ways of engaging with people. Yeah. Um, and trying to entice them back into books as well. So um, in the one in particular that I went to in Nottingham, um, in West Bridford, they do, uh, it's more of a sort of a kind of cultural hub. And so now, as well as doing books, they also do jazz events and they have all sorts of... Right, close that one down right now. <laughs> it's poetry and jazz. <laughs> um, but they're, they're trying to be much more... Sort of build audiences that way and lull them, sort of lure them into um, <laughs> lull them, trick them into lure them into the library and go, oh look, and by the way, there's books, mm. and then people go, oh, do you know what? I've completely forgotten about the joy of taking out books. Yeah, and I think they're just they're just massively important for a sense of community, aren't they? So, oh, yeah, like, you know, absolutely. they're often a place where you can find out about your local history, and mm. I think they're. Um, yeah, I just you know hope I hope you know we come to our senses and don't let them all you know vanish without um, without a fight. I used to teach um, older people how to use the internet uh, in in my local library, and it was a really enjoyable experience because did they lift the mice up? That's always my (laughs) favourite. I remember. Oh yeah, put it on the screen, (laughs) talk into it. Yeah, all all of that. Um, Have I got a website now? No, that's just opening a browser. But um, but yeah, no, it was a very enjoyable experience, and there's people there, you know, coming in for that kind of interaction, meeting me. Unfortunately, but (laughs) we'd love to hear your thoughts about um, libraries. Again, Twitter at BrumRadio underscore books and email bookclub at BrumRadio.com. You're listening to the Brum Radio Book Show. And next we're going to be talking uh, about the idea of a legacy. Um, Mm. Living forever. Writers. Uh, It's really interesting. when You you write a novel uh, and... You know, I think we've spoken about this before, about having one eye on posterity. Mm. You know, will my book still be read in 100 years' time? And um, there's an interesting article that we kind of came across, and let me just try and find it, um, where um, they, they've, um, they've sort of gone back, and this is in the States, obviously, so um, they've gone back 100 years to find out actually what was popular, mm. you, know, uh, you know, across the century. And it's really interesting. Um, um, uh, here's a couple of highlights, and, and then hopefully we'll, we'll go into a discussion about it. Um, one of the things they were saying, so for the year 1920, the uh, number one book, uh, best-selling book, was a book called The Man of the Forest by Zane Grey. Oh, yeah. um, and the number two book that year in America was Peter B. Kind's Kindred of the Dust. But interestingly... Um, 
that same year, it's the same year that Agatha Christie's The Mysterious Affairs at Stars was published. It was the same year that This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald was published. Also the same year of Women in Love by D.H. Lawrence was published. And it's this idea, I suppose, of we always think that um, the sort of books that we consider classics were considered classics mm. at the time. Mm. And uh, quite clearly, um, a, a, again, we, we sort of see um, in, I think it's 1922, you know, the number one book was If Winter Comes by A.S.M. Hutchinson. And yet it's the same year that... Um, it's the same year that The Beautiful and the Damned came out by F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ulysses by James, um, James Joyce, and Swan's Way by uh, Marcel <laughs> Proust. No, oh, many of those, I think, would be classed as difficult books, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't they? Exactly. Um, <laughs> why, why Proust wasn't the number one? Proust <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. I think but, but, but I suppose it's that, it's, the question is, do you want to be read in 100 years, or do you want to be successful now? You can't now? possibly know, can you? I mean, that's the thing. Is who would have, I bet you no one could have picked that at the time. It, it, I, I liken it to when you look at kind of, when you watch these old Top of the Pops episodes in the 70s, mm. and you see them and you go, this is all rubbish. Yes. But I thought all the music from the 70s was brilliant, and the 60s was brilliant. Of course, there was so much, you know, yeah, chaff as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, whether, but this idea, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine anyone would, that if you wrote thinking that this is this is important, people can read it in twenty years' time. How you could do that? Well, I don't really. I can't really get myself into that mindset. I can't imagine why it's more important that your book should connect with someone in fifty years than it is that it should connect with someone now. You know, I think I, uh, you know, given a choice, I would rather you know twenty people really like my book now than twenty people like it. In, I don't care. Well, I the royalties are, are, are but it's about longevity, though, isn't it? It, it, it? Would you? Which would you prefer? Would you? Would you prefer um, being number one for a week now, mm. or would you prefer to be studied at universities, being considered a, a mass? You know, people coming round to your house and saying, "This is where uh, Catherine Friend <laughs> lived." I definitely um, not want that. Um, <laughs> You know, do you want to be remembered as... This is where she kept her biscuits. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to be remembered in 100 years' time, your your work to be still read in 100 years or forgotten? What do you think? I don't think about that at all. I couldn't give a monkey's. Yeah, it's such a difficult one. I think it's... um, I obviously don't find it difficult. I'm like, no, I don't care. Because I I think... you know, I'm reminded of that Woody Allen quote, you know, about people wanting to achieve um, immortality, um, immortality uh, yeah. through um, their work. And, you know, he'd much rather <laughs> achieve it through not dying. And I think that's what people want, you yeah. know, to be read. You know, the idea to be, you know, a Dickens or, or you know, or, or somebody else who, who's, <laughs> I can't think of anybody else. Um, <laughs> Thomas who's, Hardy. Or a Hardy or, you know. Yeah. Anybody who's, who's still been read hundreds of years after their, their time. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it, it, it's great if, if your book is considered to have some worth. That, but I think to, yeah, I mean, we had this conversation before, just the idea to be focused on that or have one eye on posterity just seems um, just pointless to me and also invalidates what you're doing at, at the time, really. And, and it sets yourself up, you set yourself up to fail as well, don't you? Because A, it's, it's a bit of chance and B, only the very, very best. You know, there's not many Charles Dickens out there. So you, you're setting yourself a really high standard. It's hard enough writing a book anyway. Imagine writing one where you're saying, oh yeah, and this is going to be, you know, in 100 years time, people will be saying this is one of the best things ever. Yeah. But I, I think it's also a security benefit for some authors. I think there's an element of, you know, yes, I've been rejected by these people, but a hundred years now, I will be celebrated like, yeah. you know, very much so, yeah. Mm. So, you know, that people, I, I was ahead of the curve. 
And so I think there's, there's a sense that, you know, people like that idea. Of the, the guy who wrote, uh, Troy Kennedy Tool, I think his name is, who wrote uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Yes, John Kennedy Tool. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, you know, he wasn't published. You know, exactly. He died very yeah. young. He yeah. wrote that very young. And it was, what, 10, 15 years later after his death, I think, that his yeah. mother was tirelessly yeah. pushing to get put. I was like, no, no, no. And now it yeah. is one of the funniest books I've ever read. It is, it is. He's bowled. <laughs> and yet he's not around to uh, receive the applause. So no. actually, I suppose it's a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there Good. We go. There we are. That's, That's anyway, um, Mr. talking about death and mortality, it, 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 of course, it's enough to put you in a really Christmassy mood. And, um, <laughs> and, there um, is a lot, of, a lot of Christmas murder mysteries. Yes, yes, yeah, there it's are. A big thing. Uh, and uh, we, we, uh, Blake's been doing a lot of thinking about about Christmas books and Christmas novels. Yeah, you? like I say, I, I've been researching this idea because it fascinates me. I used to work near to a place that was a, in London that was a Christmas shop, uh, yes. and it was open 24, tw- uh, 24 hours a day. It was open all, ra- all year round selling Christmas stuff. It had yeah. trees, decorations. You go in, the music was playing. It was a weird... It must have been a really weird place to work, mm. um, and and I thought that thinking that about there's a, there's a number of these writers in this festive category who who just there's a, they write a lot of these Christmas books, often romances, and I imagine what it'd be like to spend all year writing a book and being very focused on a deadline because you can't miss it, and then it sells over maybe a six week period, yeah, and that's it. I mean, I'm looking in 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 our local supermarket here. There's a book by Heidi Swain called Snowflakes and, Chris- and Cinnamon Swirls at the Winter Wonderland. Uh, the she's, cri- not, she's not hedging her bets with that title, <laughs> <is> she? <laughs> just, just rebadge that and set it in. in some, uh, Carol Matthews, uh, Christmas Cakes and Mistletoe Nights. Carol's not a real name. Um, Millie Johnson's The Mother of All Christmases. So it must be, what it must be like to, to, to kind of get into that whole mindset. So I went to, to Waterstones and asked them, you know, who buys these books? No, no, I'm not mocking them. I'm not, not in a bad way. But, um, and, and what... What they mentioned there was that a lot of these books are bought by people for themselves. They're obviously bought by presents. You know, I've got a friend who's into books. I'll buy her that. But also um, people buy them. For, and there may be people, the same people that read, quote, unquote, serious literature throughout the year and then buy themselves this as a kind of, you know, nice little treat. treat. Yeah, at yeah. the end of the year. Um, so it's quite interesting in that. But I can't imagine what it must be like to, to write them. Well, I've actually uh, actually know quite a few people who've written Christmas oh, okay. books because it, it became um, – I'm thinking it must have been about, it's probably about 10, 15 years ago now. I mean, it all seems about five minutes ago when I think about it. But um, I can't even remember who it was, but I, I think there was somebody brought out a Christmas book and it, and it was really successful. Yeah. And I think it was just one of those trends that publishers really jumped on. And I think as well as those, those sort of reasons that you were talking about, I think there's an element of people love Christmas and they want to get into that Christmas spirit mm. as, as soon as they can. And I think the Christmas novel is a way of sort of getting all nice and cosy. It suggests, you know, reading's a really sort of cosy thing to do anyway. Reading a Christmas novel at Christmas time mm. in front of your fire because it's freezing Dressed cold. Dressed as a Christmas tree. It, it, you know, it, it, it's as Christmas as it gets. Um, but I do know from my, my friends who have written them that, you know, the deadlines for them tend to be well before the summer. Yeah, yeah. And so... They are sort of writing through Easter these Christmas books and trying to get into a really Christmassy spirit. And then they sort of put them down, put them to bed, and they, they kind of go on back onto their day jobs. And then suddenly, um, you know, six months later, you know, they're out in the shops and it really is shoehorn as many 
Christmas motifs into the title as you possibly can. <laughs> Imagine if, if you were so you were so under the cosh to meet your deadline, you actually had to spend all of Christmas Day and Boxing Day writing up in your room and missed Christmas with your family. That would be ironic. That would be that would be a that's a subject for a novel. That's it. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere there there is a there's a there is a book to be written about a, a Christmas author writing a, a Christmas Mrs. story Christmas every at year. Christmas. Mrs. Christmas. Christmas with the children. Yeah. Oh, and well, it all um, well, you know, let's, let's do it. What what does what does Mrs. Claus do? When Santa's off, that's what I'm going to know. It's no Christmas for her. She's at home. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Anyone out there? I am available for commissions. Uh, Any (laughs) agents or publishers? uh, Certainly, let me know. Have you you ever read any Christmas novels, or even novels set at Christmas time? I say that obviously Christmas Carol Mm. is the is the one that jumps out on that. I'm sure I have, but um, nothing that you know springs to mind. I just think it's um, yeah. There's something kind of I find it sort of. Anyone tries to ram Christmas down my throat, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon, so I'll probably stay away. How about you, Catherine? Yeah, I'm just thinking while Blake's talking. Yeah, I'm sure I have read loads, but I can't think. Weirdly, Christmas films and Christmas songs seem to be far more lodged in our minds, or lodged Mm. in my mind, than Christmas Mm. novels. Um, Well, there is a thing about Christmas being a kind of communal activity which right which reading yeah. isn't so yeah. maybe there's a maybe there's a an yeah. issue there you know you obviously like watching films with people listening to music with them eating dinner with them but reading might be a bit rude although that's all i ever do at christmas is, yeah. is, is sit and read i think i think the, the other interesting thing about these christmas novels is, is that obviously they have a, a really limited shelf life yeah you know come january you know well, january so the first that's it they are consigned to the bin because nobody wants them and you know you know and I've noticed in, in uh, you know charity shops, you know, you'll see a whole shelf of these Christmas books, in which will March. just then dis- disappear, yeah. um, kind of come January, and you know, yeah. will we'll sort of come out again, uh, again in November. It, it's, yeah. but it, it, it's also indicative of of how uh, publishing and publishers sort of jump on trends, yeah. and you know, are always looking for ways to sell, you know. You know, a book. Yeah, because there's a whole obviously yeah. there's a summer novel thing yeah. as well, isn't it? Written yeah, holiday novel trend for like yeah, the beach. But that's why I mean, thirty percent of all books that are sold uh, in a year are Christmas presents. Well, of course, and so it's the it's the big Christmas Christmas time, mm-hmm. and so that sort of brings us nearly to the end of the show. Um, Catherine, what uh, will you be reading, and what will you be asking Santa for um, uh, for well, Christmas? I would like, um, I, I, I want to get Jonathan Coe's Middle England for Christmas. That's what I'm asking for because oh, I still right, haven't got okay, around yeah. to reading it. And, Aren't you um, mates with him? Can't you ask a copy of him? <laughs> Hello, I don't want to pay for your book. Could you send it to me? <laughs> yeah. um, don't do anything daft like that. And yeah, I'll probably get a few a few surprises as well, you know, book wise. I've just read I've just read Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Have oh, you ever read it of hers? Oh yeah. Blimey, that was good. So I might read some more Shirley Jackson. Read the The Haunting, the Haunting of Hell of House. House. Yeah, because I mean, that's a spooky one. So that's oh, really that is um, brilliant. Yeah, really, really it. good. Yeah, the TV series is it's, it's very much big in the news because there's a big TV series. Yeah. It's entirely essentially just the same name. It's not right, the same thing at all. Right. It's quite an, an intimate. Odd little story, but brilliant. Yeah. What about you, Mike? What will you be reading? Um, well, I'm. Oh, I don't know what I'll be reading. Um, I've got a big pile of um, to be read uh, next to my book, next to my bed. So I'm going to down tools, probably in a week or two's time, and oh, nice. um, and have uh, just a week of being cosy by my fire oh. and reading and just getting all, all I like, nice. I like Christmas. No, I do. I, I I love the build up more than more yes. so than the actual yeah. um, thing, but. Um, 
And uh, book-wise, uh, the Jonathan Coe, definitely. Um, and I, I, I suppose it, it, it's books that I've been reading about that are going to be big in, in, um, in uh, 2019. Um, I, I heard a little bit of news that uh, Claire McIntosh, who, you know, big sort of thread writer, yeah. um, she's making a big genre change. And um, she's uh, her new book coming out in the summer is is um, a sort of a some sort of drama, uh-huh. um, devoid of crime. So um, I wouldn't mind getting hold of a copy of that, please, Santa. <laughs> How about uh, you, Blake? I, I, I'm this is a, sorry, embarrassing, but I uh, I, I buy myself books uh, for Christmas. Um, what I do is I make a list throughout the year. And then I go in to Waterstones and I buy them without. I, I, I make a note. So six months ago, I thought I'd fancy this. Yeah. I made a note of it, forgotten about it. I go in with the list and I just pick them up without looking at them. Take them home, wrap them up, <laughs> and um, and I give them to myself. So I know that there's three books. Happy Christmas, Blake. Under the Christmas tree. I know this is pathetic. Uh, I've got three books under the Christmas tree with my name on that I bought. Uh, but you, but I, you're sort of not quite sure what they are because it's yeah, so long ago. Yeah, exactly. So That's... I only have a kind of, I've, you know, if I think about it, I'll remember them, but I, I, I don't. So it is a little bit of a surprise to myself. All I know is, is that they Could you not just books. give that list to a loved one and say, get me some of these books? I won't, That would be even more of a surprise, wouldn't it? I know, but you know... Would you not trust them to get them it's, for you? It's, there's an element of that. And also... <laughs> Um, this way, they can get me something else. <laughs> so I still will give them a list. higher value. <laughs> so, no, so, yeah, so, uh, but other than that, I'm, uh, I'm also reading, uh, I'm going to be reading, um, I've got a folio edition of The Diary of a Nobody, which I realise I've never read. Oh, that's good, yeah. um, and everyone tells me it's absolutely wonderful. So well, it looks like we've run out of time. Um, please do email us at uh, brockcub at brumradio.com or tweet us at, at Brumradio underscore books. Tell us what you'll be reading this Christmas. We'd love to hear and what you'd like to be Christ- what like, like, like to get for Christmas and also and what you think of the whole Christmas book uh, genre. And um, it, it's, it's, we'd like to, we, we've run out of time, so we, we want to wish you a very Merry Christmas um, and a Happy New Year. Um, so goodbye from me, Mike Gale. Bye-bye from me, Catherine. And bye from Blake. Happy Christmas, everybody. Happy Christmas. Thank you.